folks, I can't even begin to say enough how we're looking forward to the day when we can fellowship with you in person. And until that day, we want to echo Paul's sentiments in 1 Corinthians 5, that even though we cannot be physically present with you now, we are with you in spirit. So we're reminded of our theme today in 1 Peter, and it's in chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. And remember, this is going to be our theme as a church uh, for the rest of the year. 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11, and it says this, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Uh, so we're going to continue our series today called God of All Grace, and the title of today's message is A Living Hope, and you're going to find out why, because this passage, I'm telling you if you hang with me, this passage is one of the most encouraging passages of scripture in the entire Bible, and it is going to encourage our spirits, and it's just going to infuse us with an enduring living hope. Now, uh, last week we saw that Peter used a couple of trademark terms, which he's going to be fond of doing throughout this book, a couple of terms that are trademark Jewish terminology to refer to the people of God, both Jew and Gentile, in Christ by faith, and so he called them the exiles, and he called them the, the diaspora, which means we learned scattered and they are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And we learn that the reason why he writes them, the purpose for writing these exiled and scattered Christians is to encourage them as the people of God. They are the people of God in an increasingly hostile world. They are going to be guarded by God until their salvation appears. And so we get that purpose statement from the passage actually that we're going to be looking at today. So the passage we're looking at today is 1 Peter uh, 1, 3 through 5. I'll pick it up in verse 3. If you have your Bible, you can turn there really quickly. And he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So that is an important passage, and we're going to camp out in these three verses. What I want to do is uh, I want to just take a minute, just take a few minutes, make some observations from the brief verses that we read to bring encouragement to the believers who are scattered and exiled in uh, Idaho Falls today. So I think the first thing we learn from the text is that we praise God in the midst of every hardship, because he's going to go on to talk about hardships, big ones big problems, okay? But we praise God in the midst of every hardship. Now, this doesn't mean that we always praise Him for every hardship. Now, sometimes we do. Sometimes we, in retrospect, we look back on discipline, discipline that the Lord has brought into our lives, and we're thankful for the lessons or for the character that He has worked in us through those things. But not every hardship is like that. Sometimes we cannot see, when we probably won't see until eternity, until we are securely in, in eternity with Jesus, we probably won't see how some hardships were working the character of Christ in us. But even though we don't praise God for every hardship, we praise God in the midst of every hardship. And Peter begins with an expression of praise that is exactly the same thing we see in 2 Corinthians 1.3 and Ephesians 1.3. It's, it's really a phrase, a sentence, that is a doxology for the early church. And he uses the word blessed. Now the word blessed can refer to people who are gifted. Blessed are the meek, for example, Jesus said, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Uh, we can also be blessed, favored, or advantaged by God. But here the word means praise. Here the word is a, a word of exultation. Peter and Paul use this phrase as a doxology to praise God, and they specify who the object is. The object is God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, whenever you see the words God, which is the word El, and the word Lord, which is the word Yahweh, okay? Whenever you see those two terms in the same sentence or in the same context, they always refer to the one God of Israel, okay? So very clear to understand, whenever you see those two words in the same context, the same sentence, they always refer to the one God of Israel. So for example, we mentioned last week the Shema of Israel, now, the Shema of Israel is Deuteronomy 6.4, and it says, Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. And that Hebrew word, you can, you can hear in that, it has the word El, okay, and it has the word Yahweh. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so whenever we see those two terms together in the, in the same context, we are talking about the same God of Israel, the one God of Israel. So we praise God in the midst of all hardships because he is worthy. And here, the New Testament writers like Peter and Paul, they are going to parse things out a bit for us. We are talking about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is thoroughly, thoroughly embedded in this first couple of paragraphs here. It's just beautiful. But what we have here is we have a reference to God in three persons, right? So we praise him because this God is worthy. And if we had no other reason to praise him, we would praise him because he is worthy. And we bless God and we praise God in response to the mercy and comfort that he alone can bring. So we praise God for his person, for his character, for the fact that he is holy and worthy. But we also praise God because he is good, because he shows us mercy and comfort. You see, God is omniscient, which means he's all-knowing. We say that God is omnipotent, which means that God can do everything that he can do. He can do everything that is possible for him to do. And we say that God is omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere all the time in every place. But God is also omnibenevolent, right? So God is all good. He is a good God, and we praise him because of his character, but also because of the good things that he does for us. And he is the God who gives us mercy and gives us comfort. And here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.3. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's that phrase again, that doxology. The Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You see, when do we experience the God of mercies? We experience the God of mercies when we face a problem that no one else has a solution for. When we are told news that no one else can help us with. When we were dead in our sins and trespasses. There was no technology, there was no gadget, there was no widget there's no human philosophy that could possibly have rescued us from that wretched, hopeless state. That's what Paul calls it in Romans chapter 7, after he describes a life of having the law, knowing the law, loving the law, wanting to obey the law. He says, wretched man that I am, I cannot, who will rescue me from this wretched condition? And then he says in Romans 8, 1 is the solution. It's the resolution. Uh, thanks be to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, I just described what it's like to be enslaved to the law of sin and death. And now I'm telling you the best possible Christian life is Romans chapter 8. You've been set free from the enslavement to sin, and you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk according to the pattern of godliness 
and to be formed into the image of Jesus. And if it were not for the mercy of God, the Father, to send God the Son, who is the Lord, we would be lost. And this is why both Peter and Paul call him the Father of mercies. If and when we receive a diagnosis, an unwanted diagnosis, or unwanted news about a child, or an announcement from a spouse who decides to divorce, sometimes we hear news that, that leaves us in a state of just being inconsolable. And nothing can rescue us from the despair and the heartache that we face. And when we were dead in our transgressions, when we were dead in our sins, only God himself could show us that mercy to rescue us and forgive us. And, we, we, and when we experience the despairing news that leaves us in a state where we, nothing else will comfort us, only the God of all comfort can speak and whisper words of solace and comfort to the despairing soul. So we praise God in the midst of our hardship. We don't necessarily praise him for every hardship, but we praise him, we praise him in the midst of everything that comes to our lives, that touches our lives. He is the God of all mercy and the God of all comfort. And we also bless and praise God because he has blessed us with every imaginable advantage. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 1.3. He says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Just take that passage in for a second. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with every imaginable blessing and advantage in the heavenly realms in the person of Christ. So along with his son, God withholds no other blessing from us in the heavenlies, and he has blessed us with every spiritual advantage. Folks, this is a generous God we're talking about here, omnibenevolent God. This is a God who is kind beyond words, and for believers who are driven into the wilderness of hardships and suffering, for believers who are driven into and exiled into the desert of despair, we bless God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Messiah who reigns supreme. And the next thing that Peter wants to tell us is very simply this. We praise God for a new start and an enduring hope. We praise God for a new start and an enduring hope. In verses 3 through 4, Peter says this, Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So I want to say this, um, regardless of how you first started in life, right? So regardless of, of your first start, how, how your life began, maybe your life began with an abusive or an absent parent. Maybe your life began with exposure to substances or abuse or pornography and addiction. Or maybe your life began with economic disadvantages or maybe advantages, However your first start came about, you may have made some catastrophically bad choices, the consequences of which you're still frankly living with. Whatever character, whatever integrity you had or didn't have in the first part of your life, in your first start, I want to tell you this, I want you to hear me very clearly. Even if you swung and missed every time you were up at bat, Every time the ball crossed the plate, you just whiffed it. I want you to hear me clearly. You can have a new start, a new beginning. You can say goodbye to the old life of deception and poor choices. And you can begin again. Peter says, because of this great mercy, now because we have such a great 
and merciful God, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. You see, you can be born again. You can be changed and made new in your inner man, in your innermost being. Your spirit can be born again. You can start over. And what does he mean by saying that we have a living hope? You know, we use this word hope all the time. I was just, over the last few days after I wrote this, I was just trying to catch every single time, either on the news or just in conversation with Carrie or the kids, I was trying to catch every single time I heard someone use the word hope. And we use this word frequently. If we buy a lottery ticket, we say, man, I hope I win this time. I hope my numbers are the right ones, right? Or if we invest in a new venture and think, man, I hope this one pays off. Or we hope this year we'll get a raise. Or maybe we hope we will get our job back this year. Or we hope the, the economy bounces back when the country re reopens. And we hope there's going to be a vaccine or an effective therapy, etc. So what kind of hope are we talking about here? What kind of hope is this? Well, it's a positive outlook. It's very simply a positive outlook. It's an expectation of better days ahead based on whether or not circumstances change or circumstances uh, go in our favor, right? So if there's any and every hope that we would have, any and every hope that we would have uh, would be in things that change in our favor. So that is a hope, it doesn't matter what it is, that is actually passing away. Those, that kind of hope, no matter what it is, is going to pass away. But a living hope given to believers is qualitatively different than, than hoping in things of this world alone. So first, let's talk about what hope isn't, because Christian hope, there's some, there's some ways in which uh, we shouldn't define Christian hope. And the first thing that Christian hope isn't is it isn't circumstantial. And what I mean by, mean by that is that it isn't tied to the shifting nature of outcomes and circumstances. Uh, the conditions of our life, whatever they are, they're fluid. If you wait long enough, things are definitely going to change. And as you get older, uh, some of you young folks will discover that things change a lot, whether you want them to or not. So conditions in life, they're fluid. They change. We may have a banner year, for example, without a twinge of pain or so much as a sniffle or getting a cold. Or we may, one year, be diagnosed with a life-threatening disease that robs us and steals us of the better part of our year. Or for some of you, that would be the better part of a decade or more. So the hope we have in Jesus is not anchored in the changing conditions and circumstances that you and I face. Christian hope is not circumstantial. Christian hope is also not self-referential. I'd like to think that I was the master of my own fate. I'd like to think that when a problem is presented to me, I have the wherewithal to just meet that problem. I can just work or think my way out of it. But Christian hope is not self-referential. What do we mean by this? I am not the source nor the reference point of my hope. I'm not the source of my hope. I'm not the referent of Christian hope. And neither are you. And so uh, Christian hope isn't self-referential. It's what we call Christocentric. And here's what that means. Christocentric means it is centered, grounded, rooted, anchored in the person of Christ alone. You see, if my hope is based on my ability to get myself into heaven or to become a candidate for final resurrection, you know, if I'm good enough and smart enough and I work hard enough and I'm holy enough, maybe I can be a candidate for heaven or final resurrection. I'm doomed. That's not my hope. And may I be blunt with you, so are you. 
And in your bones, you know that's true. You know it. Stop and think, when is the last time, honestly, have a conversation with yourself, when is the last time you ever had one perfect day? Just, a, just one day. A day when you've just gotten it all right. And I don't just mean in your actions, following through on your checklist, I mean your thought life. A day in which you didn't covet or want something that was off limits. A day in which, that's what lust is. That's what coveting is. It's just wanting something that God says, nope, that's off limits. Think of, or, or thinking ill of someone that, in a way that was unjustified. None of us have had even one perfect day. How could we possibly think that the answer or that our hope was in ourselves? Christian hope isn't circumstantial and it isn't self-referential. We don't look to positive forecasts. And we don't look within ourselves because in of myself, I have no reasons for confidence whatsoever in the future. None. The third thing that Christian hope isn't is Christian hope isn't perishable. Now, he says this. I want you to hear me very clearly. He says our hope is imperishable. It's incorruptible. And it's preserved for us in heaven until the day of our redemption. It's imperishable. It's incorruptible. And it's preserved for us in heaven until the day of our redemption. You see, unlike your retirement savings... This hope will never run out. Unlike your physical body, which gets sick and weak and outwardly wastes away every single day, this hope can never atrophy. Unlike an earthly inheritance, which can be spoiled or misused or gambled away, this inheritance is inexhaustible. It is, write this down, it is an inextinguishable hope, an inextinguishable hope. You can't put the flame of the Christian hope out. You can't put it out. So if hope isn't circumstantial wishfulness, if hope isn't self-generated or self-sourced, if hope isn't corruptible or uh, extinguishable, then what is it? The biblical word for hope simply means this. In the context of Scripture, it means this. It is a confident expectation of a future outcome where there exists a reasonable basis for that expectation. I'll say it again. It is a confident expectation of a future outcome a positive or confident expectation of the future, where there exists a reasonable, warranted basis for that expectation. You see, the strength of the Christian expectation is directly proportional to the basis of it. I'll say it again. The strength of our expectation for the future is directly proportional to the basis for our hope. And what is our hope? Well, our hope is the promise of an abundant life in Christ. That is to say that Christ becomes the end all and be all of life. And whatever we experience in life, he is our abundance. And we have that promise in John chapter 10. We also have the promise of eternal life in John chapter 10. Eternal life at death. When you die, you'll be with Christ. And we also have the promise of consummated life or fulfilled life. And that's new creation life. At the end of this age, God is going to fulfill all of his promises to us, resurrect the world, resurrect our bodies. And so you and I get abundant life in Christ now. And we get eternal life at death. And we get new creation life, new life at the end of this age. It's the promise that all things work out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Paul says right there in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, that what we have been chosen and predestined for, what God works out for our good, here's the good. The good is being formed into the image of Jesus the Messiah, to be formed into the image of Jesus Christ, our master. And so we know that hope is not um, circumstantial. It's not self-referential. Hope is not perishable. We know what it's not. 
We know what hope is, and we know that the strength of our expectation is directly proportional, directly commensurate with the basis of that hope. So what's the basis? What's the basis for Christian hope? How firm is our foundation? Well, we begin with a reasonable inference. What's an inference? A reasonable inference just means it's an extrapolation. It's what the evidence suggests is true. It's what else the evidence suggests is true. All the historical evidence points to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth has indeed been raised bodily from the grave by God the Father. And if this risen Jesus went around saying things like, I am the resurrection and the life, and those who believe in me, they who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. I mean, if, if it's true that this guy, all the historical evidence points to the fact that he has been risen bodily from the dead, and he said, I'm going to raise you from the dead, if you believe in me, then I think it's a reasonable, I think it's reasonable to infer that he's telling us the truth. But we have more than reasonable evidence to examine or to infer from. We also have an unbreakable promise. We have a promise. Now, any promise is only as good as the character of the promise maker. I'll say that again. Any promise that is made to us is only as good as the one who is making the promise. And here are some highlights of just some big promises that God has made in the Old Testament. He promised to unwind and reverse the curse on humanity due to sin. He promised to send a son who would undo the works of the devil. And he promised that that son would be in the line of King David. He promised in Isaiah 61 and 58 that he would heal the sick and open blind eyes and set captives free in the power of the Holy Spirit as evidence that he is the son. He foretold that this son would be despised in Isaiah 53 and rejected by his own people, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity and sin, and that the punishment that brings us peace, us peace with God, would be upon him instead of us. And that by the lash of the whip on his back that you and I would be healed and restored to right relationship with our God whom we've been estranged from. And he also promised that this despised and crucified son would die and see the light of life in resurrection again. Most of that is in Isaiah 53. And God promised that this son would pour out the Holy Spirit as a gift on all humanity and that young men and old men, young women and old women, Jew and Gentile alike would have and receive the promised Holy Spirit to save and transform them, every single person in the world who believes. Now, here's what I, hear me clearly. God did exactly everything that he promised he would do. God fulfilled all those promises to bring a spiritual kingdom uh, that could never fade and never end. Listen, he is the kind of person, he is the kind of person who makes good on his promises. And a promise is only good, as good as the character of the person who is making the promise to you. So he comes through. And this is why Paul says that our hope doesn't disappoint us. Why doesn't it disappoint us? Because it can't. Because the God who made the promise, he is faithful. And the God who issues the promissory note, he's good for it. And we have an inference to the best explanation. We have a reasonable inference. And we have an unbreakable promise. But wait, there's more. We have the experience of the Holy Spirit as a present. I wrote a book on this, so I'm big on this. We have the experience of the Holy Spirit as a present, transforming reality in the Christian life. We weren't just given evidence to examine so that we can make reasonable inferences from it. 
We weren't just given unbreakable promises from a God who never goes back on his word and who always backs up his word. We have the actual presence of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit that he promised at the end of the world to the Jews. God has now poured it out on Jew and Gentile alike. He has poured out his Holy Spirit and God's Spirit now dwells in us. And, and Peter says here in the text, he says, we have, a new, we have a new birth into a living hope. The promised spirit is already at work in the life of the believer. Here's how Paul said it in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, in him you were all sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth. He says, the gospel of your salvation in which you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. Notice this wording. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, which is resurrection, until the redemption of our possession, to, pray, to the praise of His glory. What is He saying here? The Holy Spirit is the earnest payment. He's the first installment. And what do we know about a first installment? A first installment always vouchsafes that the future transaction is coming. It always vouchsafes and promises that the rest is on the way. So the rest is coming, and we know that because God has already partially poured out the Holy Spirit in the heart and the life of the believer. And the first installment is also a glimpse of, and a foretaste of future resurrection glory. I want to be very clear. It's a glimpse and a foretaste of future resurrection glory with Christ. You see, you can see some of it now. You can have it in a qualitatively real measure to experience the new life and resurrection. <laughs> you can experience it through the new birth now. Years back uh, when I was a car salesman at Dave Smith Motors, for those of you who don't know that or maybe new to our church, I used to sell cars at Dave Smith Motors and I would sometimes have a customer who didn't want to buy anything off of the lot they wanted to order a custom vehicle from directly from the manufacturer, right? So uh, they didn't want a stock vehicle off the lot. They just wanted their truck or their Corvette or whatever it was they were ordering. They wanted that vehicle to be as custom as they could get it, right? So what I would ask them, we, what we required them to do is put an earnest deposit down. Now, we required them to put about 20 I want to say, if I remember correctly, I think it was about 20 or 25% down. And that was the earnest payment, the first installment. And that first installment was a pledge that the rest is on the way. And I'm not going to renege on the deal, right? I also, about nine times out of 10, um, I experienced customers wanting to make sure the deal was done before they got to the lot. So what I would do most often than not is I would FedEx all the paperwork, the entire contract. I would FedEx it to them, get some information like their license and insurance card from them, and then I would have all the paperwork done by the time they actually got months before their vehicle was finished and before they ever came to the lot. So the deal was done months before they ever came to pick it up. And then once the vehicle was transported by train, it would come by train from the East Coast all the way over to the West Coast, we would pick it up by truck from Spokane and take it out to Kellogg, Idaho, which is in the panhandle of Idaho. And then we kept it safely in a secure lot that we called the, the sold lot. And so it would be there all wrapped up in uh, plastic so it, wouldn't, so it wouldn't get scratched or nicked in transport and it would be stored out at this secure lot you had to go into the lot with your little code and it would open the gate and so um that's where we stored it 
safely for them. And then oftentimes my customers would text me or email me and ask me if I would send them pictures of it. So I would have to go up to the sold lot about a month or two before they picked it up. And then I would peel back the plastic, the protective plastic up in this secure lot. And I would take about 25 or 30 pictures of it, uh, which just, and then I would email those and it just fueled their anticipation for their shiny new car. And then eventually, months later, uh, they came to, to the lot to test drive it and then drive away because their paperwork was all done and they left with their shiny new car. And that's the kind of situation that we have in Christ. That's an analogy of what we have in Christ. You see, the Spirit is our deposit guaranteeing a future transaction. We already have the deposit of the Spirit down and God is going to bring the rest. And doc documents have already been signed. The Bible calls this justification by faith. Justification is a legal verdict, a forensic verdict in God's courtroom that you stand in the right by faith alone. By faith alone, the deal is done. And our resurrection promise is kept safely in the soul lot of heaven. And we can catch glimpses of it as we gather and as we hear the word and as we worship and fellowship, we get glimpses and pictures of heavenly glory and someday Jesus will return and he will drive away and you and I are going to drive away with a new shiny new salvation you see we have evidence we have a promise and we have the presence of the Holy Spirit God's Holy Spirit which gives us an unspoilable enduring living hope and we anticipate better days but in the meantime we praise God in the midst of hardships we praise God for a new start and an enduring hope, a hope that is not circumstantial, a hope that is not self-referential, a hope that is not perishable, a hope that cannot be spoiled. It is a confident expectation that better days are coming, and it's a reasonable basis, and the basis is a rational inference from the evidence that we have, a promise that God has given us that is unshakable and underwritten by his own character. We have the experience of the Holy Spirit, a preview and a foretaste of glory divine, and we gather to fuel, fuel our anticipation of what he is going to do in the future. You see, you, believer, you have a living hope, Peter says, but every day we must choose to live in that hope. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we gather around our TVs and computers and our cell phones to listen, to give our attention to your word. And God, I just can only hope that I have faithfully brought out the sense and the meaning. And God, we, we want to be transformed by your word. And for every single person who is listening or watching this message today who does not know the assurance of this living hope, they can know it right now. And if you're praying with me, you can be sure right now. Will you just confess the fact that you are a sinner and that you are exiled and estranged from God? Confess that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, died a vicarious death, and rose victorious over your sin and death from the grave. And then you confess and pledge your faith and your life and your trust in him and him alone for salvation and you receive the promised new birth of the Holy Spirit, a new birth that brings us into a living, enduring, and extinguishable hope. And Father, for every single believer who is listening to this message today, this morning, for every one of them, God, and they are in a situation where they need the God of all mercy and the God of all comfort. And they, they need the God who brings 
your presence in a way that only you can do. God, will you just manifest your presence and encouragement to them this morning? Manifest that hope to them this morning, we pray. In Jesus' mighty, awesome name, amen. I love you guys. I'm gonna turn it back over to Daniel, and I cannot wait. I can't wait to see you again. Love you. Bye.